turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. America is home to 33 million small businesses, the beating heart of communities across the country. And proof that the American dream is still alive. This is a show about those dreamers and doers and the communities they serve. Their real life stories. Their struggles and successes. Their grit, determination, and passion. And the people who fight. To keep their American dream alive. I'm Alfredo Ortiz. I'm Elaine Parker. And it's time for another episode of Main Street Matters. America's small business megaphone. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Main Street Matters, America's small business megaphone. I'm Elaine Parker, the president of the Job Creators Network Foundation. And I'm Jamie Bowers. I'm filling in for Alfredo Ortiz, and I'm a producer here on the show. Thanks for joining me today, Jamie, and being my uh, Ed McMahon again. Always Uh, have a lot of fun with you. (laughs) Always happy to fill in. And please subscribe to the show at SalemPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Jamie, today we are joined by Misty Shally. She's the executive director of the Critical Labor Coalition. The CLC was formed to find solutions to the nation's critical labor shortage and unleash the potential of the U.S. workforce, comprised of trade associations, nonprofit organizations, corporate and individual businesses, CLC supports legislative efforts to remove the barriers currently keeping many people from considering employment opportunities. Well, I'm excited to talk to to Misty uh, as well, because I think these are huge issues right now. The the labor shortages uh, and the the resurgence, I think, of the labor movement. You know, we've seen the UPS strikes. We've seen the UAW strikes. Um, I think there is uh, the Biden administration has certainly um, helped labor unions and and been an advocate for labor unions that has not happened before. Uh, and I think there are a lot of businesses that are are in situations where they're being confronted with strikes or they're being constructed uh, confronted with unions who have demands that just don't fit what the the economics are today. And so uh, it, I, I think Misty's really working on an issue that a lot of small businesses are dealing with. How do you get good people? And then uh, how do you compete in this world where the labor unions and, and others are saying, hey, we want um, higher pay, we want uh, higher benefits, and sometimes to the point where it just is impossible. So I, it should be interesting. Yeah, there's, um, I, I'm not sure if she's working directly on it, we should ask her about it. But I know that um, there is an effort to also, and it may have already gone through, to um, uh, take away non-competes. So that companies um, cannot enforce uh, non-competes, which, um, you know, it's a double-edged sword. But if you're a company that, um, you know, it's relationship oriented, you're selling or um, and you've got people going from one from from your company to your direct competitors and taking taking your customers, those customers with them. 
I mean, that's the reason is to, to protect your business and um, that could be devastating. Um, so there's got to be some middle ground to find there uh, as far as non-competes, but to take them away and leave business, that, that's kind of like taking away, um, you know, the, a trademark, you know, the ability to trademark your, your logos or something that you invent. It just, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like it's fair. Sure. Sure. I always think it's interesting too, with, with some of these pushes, uh, I just saw, uh, a town has, uh, they, they pass a $25 minimum wage and, and clearly California is getting closer to $20. And there's this, uh, there, there's kind of this weird cycle where you have in, in this case, you have like the administration and, um, Democrats in Congress passing all of these funding bills that increase inflation, which then affects the cost of living for everyone. And then they turn around and say, corporations are awful and mean and businesses, small businesses are mean because they won't pay enough because people can't live on the money they're making. But the reason they can't make the money there <laughs> to live is because the prices have all gone too high. So then they come around and say, well, we need to raise the minimum wage or we need to you know, add this mandate in place, which then causes more inflation. I mean, it's this kind of vicious cycle uh, and there's not really a, recon a recognition that they're causing the problem. Um, you know, part of the reason people are calling for higher wages is that uh, gas is expensive. Food is expensive. Uh, it just is, is really out of control. Um, but these same policies that they're saying we need to help the situation are actually creating that inflation and actually increasing the cost of living. So uh, I, I know I'm simplifying a very complex system, but I just think it's it's ironic that that these things are just kind of going round and round and they act like uh, they're not to blame at all for the situation we're in. No, I mean, I think that's a great point. And the end of the UAW strike is probably a great example when you look at, um, you know, the, the, the cost of uh, wage increases that the union was able to win from the, um, from the big three automakers. It's great for the workers. But at the end of the, at the end of the paragraph of that story, um, the cost of every single vehicle is going to go up another $600. So how far ahead are they really going to get? Because as those prices go up, other companies that are buying those vehicles have to raise their prices. And it just, it's, it's a domino effect of what happens. And then we're right back to where we were and the UAW workers say, gosh, I don't have enough to live. We need to go on strike again. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people, especially in the restaurant industry, would tell you that they're paying these higher wages when they need to uh, fill jobs because they're competing with other people. And I think that's the way, um, I mean, in general, wages follow skills. There's a, there's a reason a neurosurgeon makes more money uh, than somebody who is in front of the fry machine. Um, at a fast food restaurant. And so I think as you build your skills, that's what, the way you make more money. Or uh, if you are in high demand in, a, in an industry or an area that needs you know, more workers, uh, but if you do it through mandates, then you really are causing this kind of inflationary effect that's going to affect everybody uh, and how the, the cost of living is. Yeah, it's a tremendous distortion um, in the marketplace when you're mandating $25 an hour minimum wages. 
um, or $20 an hour minimum wages. I mean, why not 30? Why not 35? Why not 50? Why not a hundred dollars an hour? Um, yeah. you know, to, to, uh, uh, work in front of the fryer at McDonald's. Um, I know there was a report last week, I think I saw, um, or read about that the average cost of, you know, taking your family out to McDonald's now is around 40, $45. Um, yeah. you know, when, that that used to be sort of the cheap eats for for my family when my kids were little and we just were running too much you know from one after school activity to the next it was run through the drive through and grab a happy meal and that that doesn't sound like an affordable option anymore for for families yeah i think we're we're grappling with that across the board um road trips are more expensive because of gasoline uh cars as you mentioned um you know our family was looking at a car recently and, and it really is amazing. You know, an entry level new car is, uh, you're, you're close to 30,000 for a low end new car. Um, and so it, it just, uh, across the board has, has really gone up over the last, you know, obviously a ton in the last two years, three years. Um, and I think that is affecting, uh, the standard of living overall. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you think about it, all of this, I think you could tie back to that first day with the Biden administration and, and the cost of energy. I mean, energy drives everything. Um, and uh, I'll just spend a quick minute on this because I know that Misty's joining us soon, but the new domestic energy policy um, that will um, help small businesses and, and increase domestic energy production um, that, um, were that the Congress is looking at, um, it will help reduce inflation and cuts wasteful spending. Um, this bill is an all of the above energy policy. Um, you know, the Biden administration is just being so aggressive with their EV push, um, that it's, it's making it unaffordable for everyday ordinary Americans to buy cars, to put gas in their cars, to buy food. It increases the cost of every single thing we do. Um, because the food has to be trucked in the cost of the energy to get it trucked in the products that we buy gets brought in. All of that is all goes back to energy policy. And unless this administration stops driving up the cost of energy, we are going to continue seeing, uh, inflation and, um, Americans are going to continue falling behind. You know, it's interesting. We talked about the labor aspects and the strikes, uh, by the UAW against the big three. And one of the big sticking points, I mean, clearly people are talking about the wages as one of the concerns of the UAW. The other concern is the push for the big three automakers to have more EV vehicles because they use fewer parts. They're easier to put together. You need fewer people. And then on the maintenance side, uh, those dealerships and those uh, car repair places, there are fewer parts to break. So maybe from a consumer standpoint, there's an advantage there. And, and if consumers really want them, that's great. But here you have the administration siding clearly with UAW in these strikes, but at the same time pushing mandates that are directly uh, against what they want in terms of EV vehicles. I mean, the UAW is, is claiming uh, that the big three are pushing for EV vehicles, but I don't know that the big three, uh, other than their marketing campaigns, are really interested in pushing EV vehicles 
other than the fact that they know they're being mandated to. So here you have the Biden administration on one hand saying, we support the UAW, but then uh, pushing a policy that goes completely counter to what the UAW wants. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, there's, I think the EV question is uh, really up in the air when it comes to figuring out how it's going to affect the labor pool, figuring out how it affects uh, the unions and the production of cars here in the U.S. Yeah, well, I am glad to see this bill um, come forward. I will have this time will tell how far it actually gets. Um, but this bill advances, obviously, the provisions in the Job Creators Network, uh, American Small Business Prosperity Plan, um, that calls on Congress to enact legislation that would unleash domestic energy and lower wasteful government spending. So I'm glad to see that, um, you know, that, that plan, um, our listeners can go to jobcreatorsnetwork.com uh, and take a look at the American small business prosperity plan, because it is a very simple eight point plan that will help bring back this economy um, and prioritize small business uh, and the, the six, the 30 million small businesses 30 million people who work for them. And, you know, as we know, small business drives this economy. And so if we can help small business with reducing the cost of energy, I, we help everybody. Yeah. So, all right. Well, now it's time for our interview with Misty Shally. And the she is the executive director of the Critical Labor Coalition. Misty also represents the Wendy's Company, the National Franchisee Association, Franchise Business Services, and the Coalition of Franchisee Associations in Washington, D.C. In this role, she advocates on issues ranging from tax to health care to labor. She serves on the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Labor and Small Business Committees, as well as a number of coalitions and task forces. Misty, welcome to Main Street Matters, America's Small Business Megaphone. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I am so excited to learn about your organization, the Critical Labor Coalition. Tell us a little bit about the, the organization and what the mission and the goals are. Yeah, so I formed the Critical Labor Coalition about a year and a half ago, um, and it came out of a conversation I was having um, with the Coalition of Franchisee Associations, CFA, and I know... Uh, you know, CFA has a long history uh, partnership with Job Creators Network. Um, and we were talking about, you know, what are the top issues legislatively um, on a federal level? And, you know, what came out of that was regardless of industry, whether it were was the Planet Fitness franchisees or Meineke or Burger King, everybody was having problems with the labor shortage. Um, and that's really where the idea came. And so we started talking about, well, what kind of legislative solutions can we um, address? And from that conversation came, well, let's let's start looking at specific demographics. And we started looking at the senior community and how do we get the senior community back to work? It was just past COVID and, you know, a lot of people had retired um, early or not. And, um, you know, they're very reliable workforce, very smart, hardworking, reliable. And everybody said, we'd love to get them back into the workforce. So I just did a little digging and reached out to AARP, um, learned about some legislation that they were working on to expand uh, the earned income tax credit for those over 65. Um, and that's really how it started. Um, I started kind of like 
looking around DC, talking to some of my colleagues at the National Restaurant Association and Hotel and Lodging. Um, and it just kind of started from there and it really has grown ever since then. That is really interesting. Um, what have you seen as the barriers? If you're talking about the earned income tax credit, do a little bit and explain to people what the earned income tax credit is, because um, that is not something that is in the, I think, the public vernacular. Uh, and so that would be interesting. And then how does that attract older people? Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious where those barriers are for older people to go into the workforce. Yeah, that's a great question. So the Earned Income Tax Credit, or EITC here in D.C., um, is a tax credit for workers and, you know, some lower income workers, workers that need assistance um, a little bit kind of to offset the payroll taxes and all of that kind of stuff that you get when you're working. Um, and prior to the pandemic, those under 25 and over 65 who did not have a qualifying child, who weren't raising a child, um, were not eligible for the tax credit. During COVID, um, you know, because of, you know, a lot of legislation was passed for increased funding, EITC um, was expanded so that um, if you were over 65 or under 25, that you could get EITC after that. Um, and for a larger amount, there was expanded in a number of different ways, but um, that expired. Uh, that was a temporary fix. And so now we're working with AARP to permanently eliminate that top tier. And we're working with other organizations like Golden State Opportunity and other um, anti-poverty organizations um, that we wouldn't, honestly, we wouldn't necessarily partner with on other issues um, to lower that uh, bottom age limit to 18. Um, so, you know, if you don't have a qualifying child, you should be able to receive the tax credit if you're working. Um, and that's really, um, that's really how it started. So, so the earned income tax credit will boost income for those people who qualify. So they're basically lower income workers, people who would be working at, uh, either restaurants or retail shops where maybe there, that isn't a, it's an hourly wage, um, uh -huh. that's on the lower end. Now, did just to clarify, do employers then get some benefit as well as the worker or does all the benefit go, flow to the worker or some of those payroll taxes uh, uh, credited to the employer as well? Right. That is uh, the EITC is specifically targeted at the workers. So um, they get the tax credit. There are other proposals that we support, like uh, the work opportunity tax credit. That's another one. Or WOTC, that is um, a tax credit for employers to hire certain demographics that often overlap with those qualifying for EITC. Gotcha. What, so yeah. I have a quick story. Uh, there were years ago, I was at an outlet mall and there was a black and Decker outlet and there was an older gentleman behind the counter who was chatting it up with the, you know, customers. He was, he was very entertaining. He clearly was enjoying his job. And somebody said, well, I thought, I thought you retired. And he said, yeah, about six, uh, uh, it was probably nine months ago I retired. And after six months of being at home, my wife said to me, Harold, I married you for better or for worse, but I did not marry you for lunch. Go get a job. <laughs> 
And so he he had gotten a job at at the Black and Decker store and was working part time, but it clearly helping the store, but also he was really enjoying, you know, the engagement and and dealing with customers and everything else. I always thought I always remembered that story. I thought it was funny. <laughs> Well, you know, the the older community is, uh, they're great employees and um, very reliable and often, you know, they don't need to work full time. They can, you know, sometimes they want to just get back into the community and work part time and they're just fantastic um, employees. So we want to do what we can to get them back in. And a lot of them, uh, frankly, you know, retired early. They were concerned about COVID. The job you know, market was not doing well. Um, and so some of them regretted that choice after post COVID and wanted to reenter. So, sure. um, you know, we'll do what we can to help that. That sounds great. Yeah. I think that's great. And, um, I don't, uh, I'm not sure where you are. Are you in, are you in DC? I'm outside of DC. Yeah. Okay. So I'm in Florida and, um, Publix is the big, um, grocery store here. And I've noticed for years, even pre-COVID, that Publix has tapped into um, older employees um, and bringing them into the workforce to work in the stores. Reliability, obviously, is one. But obviously, we've seen this sort of drift from younger people, you know, not not wanting to do certain jobs. And, um, and so they tapped into it. And I remember having a conversation with one of the older employees who said, I work here, you know, I've got to put in uh, 80 hours a month. So 20, just 20 hours a week. He's like, gets mm -hmm. me out of the house. You know, I'm not bugging my wife. Um, and I get good exercise and I get to talk to everybody all day and I get insurance benefits um, to coincide mm -hmm. with his Medicare, you know, and that, that was a big help for him. Um, and plus he yeah. made a little bit of money. Yeah. 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 We, um, so one of our members or two of our members are the National Grocers Association and the Food Marketing Institute. Um, sure. I just spoke at their, um, annual, the NGA's annual meeting on a panel about, you know, what does the workforce look like? And, you know, just as you're saying, Elaine, the workforce is changing. And, while some industries are back 100%, uh, a lot of those that our coalition, the criti uh, Critical Labor Coalition represents, are in the service industry. And as you mentioned, you know, the, the demographics are changing. Um, people want more flexibility. Um, people want um, not to be physically in uh, a retail or restaurant space. Uh, they want to work from home. And that just isn't the reality for restaurant owners and retailers and hoteliers. They need people physically there. And so that's really what we're trying to do, get people back into the workforce and physically into, you know, the business, the businesses. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what are some of the other issues that you're tackling on the labor shortage, whether it might be, you know, in, in this case, you're looking to expand legislation that will help bring older or, or younger Americans into the workforce. But what about um, legislation that is or policy that currently exists that's making it harder for employers to find jobs? Or is there anything that you're trying to repeal or, or fight that is you see as a big challenge um, for these kind of entry-level jobs or these retail jobs uh, or restaurant jobs? Yeah. Um, 
Yes, thank you for that question. One of the things that we're trying to kind of push back or not push back on, but the effects of the legislation have really affected the, the labor force are the tightened immigration policies that occurred during COVID. Um, for, you know, you know, whatever reason, uh, agree or disagree, those policies kind of limited the, um, the amount of people that could come in and, and legally work. And we're seeing the effects of all of that now. It's just a mess, as I'm sure you all know. Um, you see it on the news and everything. And so one of, in addition to tax policy, the other area we're really focusing on is workforce. Um, we just, there are, just aren't enough people here. Um, Again, going back to what you were saying, Elaine, um, the changing demographics, younger workers aren't entering um, the, the workforce as they did in the past. I don't know about you guys, but when I was 16, I wanted to work. My daughter... <laughs> My daughter just wants to play soccer, and honestly, it's just it's just changed the um, yeah. the, the demographics, um, and so we need workers here. We just don't have enough. And the recent jobs report um, issued by by the Department of Labor came out and said, okay, well, for every every job opening, there's 0.7 unemployed workers looking for a job. So that means that if everybody that was filed for unemployment, found a job, there would still be, and I don't have the exact number, but hundreds of thousands, if not millions of work of job openings. And that's the problem. Um, so we do um, want to focus or expand on things like um, the time period in which asylum seekers, when they come over, uh, right now it's a minimum of 180 days uh, to, uh, to get a work permit. So they're, you know, they're, they're getting government funding. Some of them are in the hotels that need the workers, ironically, <laughs> and they want to work. They want to be part of the community and they're just not able to. So we support, there are a couple pieces of um, bipartisan legislation uh, in both houses that would reduce that time frame to 30 days, let them work. Um, we need it and they want it. Um, and then there are there's another workforce bill we're working with Congressman Smucker um, and Cuellar on, which would create a non-immigrant visa program, an H2C visa, for those that don't don't have specialized skills. You don't need a college education to come over. It's not an ag visa. These are for service workers um, because. You probably go into restaurants just like I do, and there's a wait, but there are 20 tables open, and you're wondering why there's a wait, and it's because there's no servers. There's not enough servers. So um, that's another area that we're looking at. Yeah, I think uh, that's really interesting. And I, you know, the, 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 I think both sides have, have of the political um, aisle have made immigration a very emotional issue and, and they have both uh, used it um, to further their own gains. But the reality is you need um, more workers in the system. And these are not jobs that, that are being taken away. Uh, and I used air quotes there from, from people who are American citizens looking for those jobs. There is nobody who is doing many of those jobs. And I think the reality is what happens is you get employers who are 
skirting the law, hiring people under the table. And so that is not only disadvantaging the employers that play by the rules, but it's disadvantaging those workers too, because they're getting paid less, they're not getting benefits, and more importantly, they're not paying taxes. And so if there's a way to legally do this, um, and you can debate debate whether those people deserve citizenship all day long, I have no problem with that. But I, I do think there are people who want to work and there are jobs that are open. And it seems crazy that we can't come up with a way to marry those two things in a way that makes sense for the employers as well as the workers, but doesn't necessarily mean that you have, I think we're, people like to, to create problems as they say, well, geez, these are all people who are getting welfare or they're getting all these government benefits that they don't think they deserve. But I think many of the people who are, are there trying to come into this country really just want to work. Yeah. And there are, you know, in these bills, there are protections just, you know, for those concerns that address those concerns in that in the Smucker bill, which is called the Essential Workers for Economic Advancement Act. It's a very long name. <laughs> um, but there are protections in there, like the the area has to be under a certain unemployment rate. So they're you know not high unemployment. The employer, I believe the job has to have been posted for 60 or 90 days um, without, you know, being filled, things like that, sure. that, that help assuage those fears that these are jobs that are being taken away because they're not. Um, and, and, uh, you know, those that continue to object for those reasons, they're just unfounded. Yeah. Um, I, I've, I've had some conversations with people in the the agricultural world, and whether it's chicken processing plants, for example, um, you are not getting uh, a lot of uh, American citizens applying for those jobs. And they said, you know, without some sort of uh, immigrant visa, work visa situations, they literally can't operate because they would yeah. have no one working there. Um, and yeah. so there, there are are jobs out there, and there that clearly most Americans don't want to do. And if you have immigrants who say, Hey, I'm, I'm willing to do this job because I want to build a base. I'm, I'm trying to climb the economic ladder. It seems yeah. uh, like we should be able to make that work. Yeah. And, and it's also taxing on those employees that are currently working. I mean, they're being, they're, you know, working extra hours. They're being asked to do a lot more than they were in the past. And that's putting a toll on them, especially I, you know, I was talking to a Burger King franchisee uh, in a in a resort town, um, and you know they they have some of them are closing one or two days a week just to give their employees a break. I mean, it's costing them money, but um, you know if they don't, then they're they're going to lose those employees. Um, and with you know rising wages and all of that, there's so much more competition for those that are already in the workforce that it's you know the turnover is very high. I, I once stopped at a Friendly's um, in the last couple of years, and the sign on the door says we're closed Monday through Wednesday because they couldn't staff it. And I and I was taking a picture of the sign because I thought it was such a an, an unusual situation. And the owner happened to be inside, and he came out and he talked to me, and he said, "Yeah, I can't find enough workers. Uh, normally at this time of year, I should have fifty people on the payroll." He said, "I have 18. 
and I, there are just days I can't do it. And if he and his wife, who are the franchisee, the franchisee owners, um, aren't Mm. working, they have to close. He said he went to his daughter's college graduation. So they had to close the whole restaurant for a week because they couldn't operate without the owners actually working behind the counter or scooping ice cream or at the grill. I mean, it was really unbelievable. Yeah, we do. We do on our social media every Wednesday. We post a work. It's called Workers Wanted Wednesdays, and they're just help help wanted signs. Um, and we tag the businesses, tag the businesses um, that are there, um, just to show that this is an ongoing problem. This isn't going away. So, yeah, it, interesting. You're doing very important work in coming up with solutions. Um, if if we could just. Um, reduce the chaos at the border, you've got solutions for the people are here and that would help the business owners and as well as the people that are here and getting them back to work and helping them be contributing to um, society. Again, the argument on uh, immigration status, whether they become citizens or not, is a different discussion, but the reality of what has to be dealt with is here. But I think first that there has to be some um, reckoning of the chaos that's happening at the border because you've got real solutions um, sort of down the pike if if that chaos can be uh, alleviated too. So um, so thank you for what you're doing there. Um, how are you working with uh, and collaborating with other labor and advocacy groups to advance your agenda? Well, many of the advocacy groups are members of ours, um, but what we what we pride ourselves on as well is in addition to supporting bipartisan legislation is working with what we call kind of strange bedfellows groups that we wouldn't necessarily work with. I mean, when would we have, we normally have the truck stop operators working with ARP. It's just, um, you know, a different group. And it's really the intent is to show Congress that these are problems. These are not partisan problems. These are issues on the right and the left. For example, on the immigration issue, we are working, um, with groups like Tent and um, the uh, Refugees International um, and um, hold on, I'm sorry, I forgot. The name of it. It's called um, ASAP, uh, the Asylum Seekers Advocacy Project. Groups like that, which we wouldn't normally be walking hand in hand with, we all want this um, Asylum Seeker Bill to pass. And we might not agree on some of the details, but the ultimate goal is we want, we just need more workers. We, we want more workers the, what, you know, their agenda might be different, but we all want this bill to pass. Um, so it's very interesting. And we were, we were talking with, um, Congressman Kevin Hearn, who is a McDonald's a former McDonald's franchisee about this. And he was saying, well, what, have you talked to the unions? And I said, well, it's interesting because we don't usually have that relationship with the unions, with unions on a lot of issues, being perfectly candid, but we all want more workers here. So why are, why are we not working, you know, with them to get, get people here? And so in one of the coalitions, um, the, uh, the unions, and I don't know which specific one because we don't organize that coalition, but we're a member of it as are certain unions that are trying to get um, asylum seekers to work. Interesting. Is there, do you have a website where, um, are you trying to get grassroots 
um, people to write their congressman, write their senator about some of this legislation? Is there is there a place people who are listening who say, yeah, I agree. We need some common sense um, solutions here. Where can they go to to voice their uh, support for these things? Yeah, our website is um, www.criticallaborcoalition.org. We are a nonprofit, 501c4. Um, and so you can go there and you can also Google Critical Labor, Labor Coalition. Our social media is very active. Um, and there is follow-up information there. Um, and we also focus on um, second chance workers. That's not... Um, not currently legislative, but to get those justice involved in uh, individuals um, back to work also very important. So we're here's another partnership. We're partnering with the American Probation and Parole Association um, because right now there is no connection between an employer and their local probation officer. Like you oh, can't. Interesting. Yeah, they can't. You know, there are ways to find them, obviously, but um, what we're trying to do is to connect those communities so that, um, you know, there's a, 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 a ongoing relationship uh, between the employer and the probation officer because they both want these people to get back to work and the probation officer knows um, their clientele and that whether they're ready mentally or otherwise to start working and really get them back into the community. Um, and these are, you know, these are jobs where you don't need a college degree to advance and become a manager and become a regional manager and even own your own franchise. These are opportunities that uh, second chance workers can take advantage of right now and really see um, a full-time career. So uh, we're working non-legislatively on, on that proposal um, with APPA and some others. There's no, um, you can't miss that we have a huge crime problem. And if you've got people coming out of the system and the best way to keep them from committing crimes is to ensure that they acclimate back into society. And that begins with getting a job um, right. and contributing that way and being able to support themselves um, so that they don't feel the need to turn back to that life. Exactly, exactly. Um, getting a job is one of the um, you know best ways to avoid recidivism um, in the second chance community. And so we're really kind of starting from scratch there, but I'm really excited about what we're doing there. Um, so stay tuned. Interesting. Um, now, Misty, yeah. clearly you've been working with the kind of small business community for a long time, whether it's with the franchisees, whether your current position, what has drawn you to that community? And, and do you have any personal experience? You're, you're kind of a small business owner now. I mean, you, you're certainly entrepreneurial in that you started this coalition. You saw a need, you're filling the need, but what has drawn you to these, this community and um, these people? Uh, interesting question. Um, yes, I did start my own small business. Um, Capital Solutions is my company and um, the Critical Labor Coalition that I started is kind of a client of that company. Um, but I didn't, honestly, I didn't realize how hard it is to run your own business. I've never done it before. And it gives me a, a newfound respect uh, for the franchisees I've been representing for 15 plus years, man, it is hard. And, and, you know, you are on the line like this is this, you know, what you do is directly affects your standard of living. So <laughs> you're putting food on the table. This is not, this yeah. is not indirect. Yeah. 
and and you know all the filings and and I'm a I'm a, an attorney but I don't know these filings and what we have so uh you know shout out to all the small business owners man this is this is tough but um the 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 really the reason I love and continue to love representing franchisees like the uh, Burger King franchisees Buffalo Wild Wings and the Coalition of Franchisee Associations is uh, probably the, one of the most rewarding is helping to explain the franchise model. I mean, people on Capitol Hill, let alone people, you know, all over, uh, don't understand that, you know, the, you see a Burger King on the door and it's not a big corporate entity. It's a small business owner that lives there, um, that employs people in, in the neighborhood, um, and that sponsors Little League and things like that. And helping to explain that to members and their staff. The fact that they think that, um, you know, uh, they have a deep pockets and unlimited funds to pay for everything and people, their starting salary should be $50 an hour or what have you. Um, for, for quick service in particular, I mean, that's just not the reality. And to be perfectly honest, I started from, from the other side thinking that yeah, you should be paying them $50, $50 an hour. Why aren't you? And it wasn't until I really got to know the uh, the finances of, for example, there's a small business owner in Maine that was going to testify in the Senate um, on minimum wage. And she said, here are my numbers. Here's the top line. Here's what I have to give Burger King corporate. Here are my labor expenses. If you raise wages or impose other mandates on my business. Number one, I am paying that. The corporation is not paying that. And number two, you will see I cannot live on that. It is just not um, enough for me to live on. So what do I have to do? I have to uh, lay off workers and kind of the the effect is just the opposite of the intent. So um, I'm sorry for that long-winded answer, but you can see I'm very passionate about that, <laughs> understanding that you know, franchise model. It's interesting. Elaine and I did some focus groups with um, quick service employees. And one of the questions, because you mentioned not, you know, Congress doesn't understand it. The general public doesn't understand it, but a lot of times even the employees don't understand it. And we asked a question. We said, well, if you sell um, a $10 uh, meal at your fast or your quick service restaurant, how much do you think the franchise owner keeps? And the, the numbers ranged from $5 to $7. They thought their profit <laughs> margins were like 50 to 70 we even had somebody who said, well, I think they probably keep $9 out of the $10. Um, and so when you said to them, hey, it's really, you know, between 3 and 5%. So on on uh, a $10 meal, the, the owner of the franchise is making $0.30, cents, um, $0.50 cents maybe. They yeah. were really blown yeah. away. And, and uh, so one of the things Bernie Marcus, who founded the Job Creators Network, was very passionate about was uh, he also was one of the co-founders of the Home Depot, but he wanted the employees at the Home Depot to know how the system worked and how the finances of the company worked. And if you did things like higher minimum wages or higher starting wages, well, where is something's got to give here's, here's what the numbers are. Uh, so right. I think oftentimes people hear 
like you, if you didn't know anything about it, you say, well, why can't these guys pay a, a living wage or, or a higher wage? Uh, and if you mm-hmm. don't know how the business works, it, it, it seems like a reasonable ask, uh, but it, it really, right. it's far more complicated than that. Absolutely. And I'm still trying to explain it to my family who, you know, yeah, I I mean, a a $20, for example, minimum wage sounds great. I mean, I'm I'm sure every employer would love to do that. They have relationships with these employees. These are not, you know, um, but the reality is it's just that's not how uh, a quick service or, you know, low profit margin businesses work. Um, So, uh, there are other opportunities available there, but, you know, it's not, uh, it, it's not, as you said, it's not as easy as it's, as it's saying, just increase their wages. Yeah. I, yeah. I once yeah. went my, my first in Washington, this had to be 25 years ago. I went to a minimum wage, a hearing on the Hill and the chairman of the committee kind of went on a little speech. Um, I won't share which, uh, which, political party he was with. But if you hear his comment, you probably can make some assumptions. But he said to one of the uh, witnesses who was a person who owned a small factory um, who had 100 employees. And he says, well, I don't understand why if you have 100 employees that you're paying the minimum wage to, why you can't just have 50 employees and pay them all a living wage. And I mean, to me, I thought, did you hear your own question? I mean, there's a reason he has a hundred employees. He has a hundred employees worth of work. You can't make 50 right. employees do a hundred employees amount of work. Uh, and it just, it, it really struck me um, that many of the legislators do not have the experience in business. They've never been the person to sign a paycheck. For somebody. Right. And I think exactly. one of the things the Job Creators Network really cares about, clearly you've had a lot of experience with this, Misty, is part of our job, part of our mission in Washington or in these states is to let legislators know what it's like to be a small business owner, what it's like to sign that paycheck, and yep. what kinds of sacrifices you make and decisions you make. That these are not, these are not, uh, you're not being cruel you're not trying right. to deny people, but there are there are economic realities that you have to deal with. And I think many of the legislators just come out of a world where they just don't have that experience. And so it's right. part of our job, both as advocates and then the job of small business owners to let these legislators know, give them some insight into the that world. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, education is probably the most difficult yet impactful part of advocacy here when you're talking about the franchisee community. Um, I remember when uh, Obamacare came out and we were on the Hill uh, constantly and we were in somebody, somebody in the Senate side's office in the health, uh, the help committee, the committee of jurisdiction and uh, talking about the financial impact. And they said, well, yeah, but your franchise or pays for it. So what do you care? Okay, well, no, that's not how that works. And and the franchisees kind of started laughing, not trying to be insulting, but the fact that, um, you know, the the lack of understanding. um, and, and, And if you go down the line, and that's what really hit me, here is my top line, here's my bottom line, this is what happens. Um, 
they sometimes it helps. Sometimes, unfortunately, they don't want to hear that. They just right. they just want to go with the soundbite. And unfortunately, that is the reality in many situations. But sometimes uh, you do get through to them. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, one thing, there's a self-selecting group. The people who are advocating for small businesses or who are brought in front of Congress are the people who have been successful enough that their business is still in business. I almost wish there was an association for business owners who have failed uh, or, or franchisees who went out of business because they could really tell the story that says, hey, these policies that you put in place, I, I, it didn't work. I couldn't make it work. And so you don't hear often from the failures, um, even even the business owners who come up and say, hey, if you if you make this law happen here's how it's going to affect me, here's how it's going to hurt me, are not even as effective as the people who say, who who have already um, failed at business because of some of these policies. Yeah, good point. And unfortunately, I think in California, for example, you're going to have a lot of those examples coming up yeah. in the next year. Yeah, ago. yeah, for sure. Yep. Well, yeah. Well, Misty, I want to thank you so much for joining us, taking the time to join us on Main Street Matters, America's Small Business Megaphone. Can you share that website again for your organization? Absolutely. Thank you. It's www.criticallaborcoalition.org. Uh, please take a look and um, feel free to reach out. Uh, my contact information is on there and, and we'd love to have, have you take a look and help with the labor shortage. And thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen. Main Street Matters is part of the Salem Podcast Network. New episodes debut every Wednesday and Friday. Please subscribe at SalemPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get your podcast from. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 